Howdy, y'all. Chris here. Before we get things started, Mark and I would like to thank two of our listeners, Joseph Callahan and Dana Reedling Russell, for sharing our recent episodes on social media, specifically Facebook. Thanks, guys. It's nice to know somebody's listening and that somebody's spreading the word. And now, without further ado, episode 13 Sacred Sin of the Ultimate Heart. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. the Prince of Darkness. This is Mark Konzorowski, a.k.a. Sharon! <laughs> well, that's an interesting uh, alter ego that you've taken on there. Thank you. I'm back crazy. <laughs> Tonight we're going to talk about a feud between two rock titans that took place in the early 1980s, early to mid-1980s. In one corner, we have the madman, Ozzy Osbourne. In the other corner, we have the last in line himself, Ronnie James Dio. And this feud certainly made reading rock magazines interesting in the 1980s, that's for sure. It was all a rage in Hit Parader, Cream, Circus, you name it. It sold copies. Yep, and it certainly uh, sold copies, and it probably helped to sell a few records along the way. Yeah, it was it was a very well orchestrated uh, soap opera slap fight. Far more interesting than the soap operas that were on TV at the time, that's for sure. That's true. Well, in boxing, they have a thing called the tail of the tape. So here's a look at our two contenders. Ozzy was born John Michael Osborne on December 3rd, 1948, in Aston, Birmingham, England, and Ronnie James Dio was born Ronald James Patavona on. July 10th, 1942, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. A local boy. I know, uh, the pride of, not exactly the pride of New Hampshire. He's always been associated more with upstate New York in the early days, but origins are origins, so I, I give you that one. That's right. You know, he, he was born here, and we had him, for however brief that was. So, Mark, why don't you sort of set the stage for how this uh, feud may have begun or did begin or began, actually? As it began, um, basically you're talking about the developments that occurred in 1978 at a time when Rainbow were at a crossroads. Um, Long Live Rock and Roll had just been released, and apparently sales were not quite up to expectation. At that point, Richie Blackmore apparently felt that adopting a more pop-oriented approach, complete with hit singles, would be the formula that would take Rainbow to the heights that Deep Purple had formerly enjoyed. Ronnie, on the other hand, was much more interested in continuing down the, uh, the progressive path that the early albums by Rainbow had established. He really wasn't keen on going back to, you know, a top 40 three-minute single formula. There were some clashes. Ultimately, however, Rainbow is Richie Blackmore's band, and he's the one who sets policy and also sets the personnel. So our friend Ronnie found himself on the outs. Meanwhile, Black Sabbath, meanwhile, had already replaced Ozzy once with a guy named Dave Walker, who looked a lot like a farmer and definitely didn't fit in. He doesn't sound very good either. The resulting sessions were not very uh, promising. Dave Walker was given his walk-in papers. Ozzy was brought back to record an album in Toronto in the middle of winter in a studio that was not heated. And he refused to sing all the songs that had been written with Dave the Farmer in mind. Recipe for disaster. Yeah, I remember when I got Never Say Die, and I was wondering who sang on, uh, I can't remember the track, but I, th I assumed it was Dave Walker. It turns out it was Bill Ward. And Bill Ward had sung a track on the Technical Ecstasy album, so I guess there was precedent for that. That's true. It stuck all the way, the song is called Swinging the Chain, and it stuck all the way on the end. And... Bill Ward's performance on that is not exactly memorable, but, you know, that was one of the songs they had left over that had been written for Dave Walker to sing, which Ozzy refused to touch with a barge pole. 
also uh, Never Say Die comes out, and it sells decently because it has the name Black Sabbath on it. But it's not exactly one of their most memorable creations. No, definitely not. I remember the first time I heard it thinking, okay, this couple of tracks here are pretty good. But uh, some of the tracks were quite questionable. And I'm sure that had to do a lot with egos, substance abuse, and uh, you know the general issues that go along with being in a rock and roll band. Well, it's ten songs recorded in ten days and pretty much written on the spot as the tape was rolling. So, you know, the the contrast between Long Live Rock and Roll and Never Say Die is, is pretty telling. Oh, yeah, definitely. Although I would say that uh, Long Live Rock and Roll is a better album. Oh, it definitely is by far. The only problem is it didn't sell. Yep. Well, then you jump ahead, you know, to, okay, at this point, Dio's out of Rainbow. This is like 79. Black Sabbath, on the other hand, is on their 10th anniversary tour and not holding up very well, apparently. Ozzy is missing. There was a story where Ozzy went to the wrong hotel and they they, they called the police for a missing persons report. And like I said, he just he checked into the wrong hotel. They found him across town somewhere. So they were having issues with Ozzy. Uh, they were also having their own issues, like I said, with substance abuse. And nobody was exactly in their right mind then, but apparently Ozzy was seen to be a bit of a loose cannon, and he was made to leave, or he was fired, or he engineered his exit. It all depends on which interview you read with Ozzy or the guys from Sabbath. Yeah, I think nobody really knew who was coming or going at that point, but it was obvious that a change was absolutely needed uh, to bring back some semblance of stability. The interesting thing is that Sabbath at that point had apparently agreed to leave Warner Brothers Records and were wanting to move to a label called Jet, which was run by a certain um, Don Arden, who was the father of a certain Sharon Arden. Sharon? Why does that name sound so familiar? Hmm. Yeah, it's a name that pops up a couple times in the story. But anyhow, they, they'd agreed to go to Jet Records. Unfortunately, Don Arden had so many issues with Ozzy personally that he basically refused to take them unless they got rid of Ozzy. So again, there's another reason for Ozzy to be shown the door. Well, yeah, and I mean, I remember reading interviews in the 80s with Ozzy where he said he engineered his own exit. He, he was misbehaving purposefully because he didn't want to be in the band anymore. But like I said, it's it, it depends on which interview you're reading and what year and you know, and what state of mind uh, Ozzy was in. A lot of instability, for sure. Uh, but the interesting thing is that at this point, Ronnie James Dio suddenly enters the picture. At a time when Geezer and Bill Ward are questionable, you know, th- there was a whole point where it was questionable whether Sabbath was going to continue at all, or was going going to continue under the name Black Sabbath. Um, Geezer apparently left for a while and was replaced by, depending on who you believe, Jeff Nichols or Craig Gruber, even. Yeah, it's there's so like again, there's so many stories and so many books and so many interviews, and you know, obviously Ronnie's Ronnie James Dio is no longer with us, so we could we couldn't get a fresh perspective on that. But yeah, it did seem like for a while Sabbath. The future of them was questionable because, you know, between losing Ozzy and their own issues, you know, they didn't seem to know where they were going. And the story I had heard is that uh, Tony Iommi had run into Ryan James Dio in like late 78 and they started jamming together. But then Sabbath was offered this big 10th anniversary tour in 1979. So... They went back with Ozzy, and that's when everything fell apart. And then in the summer of 79 or whatever or something like that, Tony Iommi got in touch with Ronnie James Dio again. And that's when the whole thing started, you know, with uh, Geezer leaving and, you know, Craig Gruber coming in. And 
Jeff Nichols and you know whoever was around at the time. It, it seems like every year a new somebody comes forward with new revelations about that time period. Which is um, the perfect point to mention that a, a brand new tape, a couple of brand new tapes have emerged uh, from the estate of the late Jeff Nichols. Um, Jeff Nichols passed away a few years ago. His stepson, however, has been um, uploading some tapes from Jeff's personal collection. Um, there's a demo, a demo, very early version of Heaven and Hell that surfaced. And there's also an interesting song that was never released called Slapback. Yeah, and that's generated some controversy because Iommi is not happy. Tony Iommi, the guitar player from Black Sabbath, is not happy that that song is out there. And there seems to be some dispute over who played bass on it. You know, it was a geezer, and Tony Iommi is saying that it was Ronnie James Dio. Because Ronnie James Dio did play bass, among other things. He played some trumpet as well. Yeah, Ronnie James Dio for many years was the bass player in his various bands uh, until he finally decided to be the front man solely so that he could, he could concentrate on his lyrical presentation. But yeah, for many years, Ronnie was the bass player in the various versions of the Elves, the Electric Elves, the Elves, and finally just Elves. But, you know, obviously when you're in a new band and you're trying to figure out what's what, you, you know, you... You shift around in some different roles, and with Geezer gone and the status of Black Sabbath uncertain, you know, they had to carry on. I mean, I, I do know that when Ronnie James Dio started working with Tony Iommi, he said they had a really good chemistry together, and that's pretty obvious from the the records they did release and the tapes that they're coming out with. So that much is that much is true. We know that to be certain. Well, we, we I think we both agree that it's good music. Yeah, Slapback is an interesting song because it sounds a lot, it, it sounds very much in the vein of a rainbow kind of track, kind of like Starstruck or the Long Live Rock and Roll title track. It has that bounce to it. It, it definitely seems like a Dio-written song, but the solo that's played on it is definitely Tony rather than Richie. It's it's definitely an Iommi solo. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Iommi has a very distinctive guitar style and tone. Well, he's the riff master. Yeah. Um, it could be Ronnie. Some people think it might be Jeff Nichols. Geezer apparently thinks it was Geezer. I think that's the least likely of the scenarios because I think Geezer was out of the group at that time. Right. And when we discussed uh, Heaven and Hell and uh, Blizzard of Oz in our imaginatively titled Albums of 1980 episode... I did mention that Geezer did not compose the bass line to the song Heaven and Hell. Because um, no. he said he would have come up with something a, a lot more imaginative. Yeah. So I, I, I think Geezer is very likely misremembering. Meanwhile, of course, on the other side of the world, um, Ozzy is slowly but surely, maybe it's Ozzy doing it, maybe it's Sharon doing it, Somebody is putting together a Blizzard of Oz band. Well, actually, Ozzy wasn't that far from where Black Sabbath was, because as, as I understand it, they were out in L.A. doing the um, Black Sabbath thing, Dio and uh, Iommi and company. And Ozzy was at a hotel, living in a hotel in Los Angeles, just, you know, pissing away his... Uh, his settlement from Black Sabbath on, you know, pizza and beer. And that's where Sharon came upon him. And apparently somebody had given money to Ozzy to give to Sharon. Well, you know what happens when you give money to somebody who is an alcoholic and a drug addict, don't you? Yeah. It, uh, it kind of disappears strangely. And yet somehow Ozzy and Sharon hit it off, um, you know, personally. And Sharon basically said, all right, if you're willing to clean up a little bit and uh, get your act together, we might be able to do something with you. Mm -hmm. That's why I've said that, you know, you can say what you want about Sharon, but if it wasn't for her, Ozzy would not have had the post Black Sabbath solo career that he had. Well, that's definitely true. He couldn't have done it by himself. There's only so much that Bob Daisley can take credit for, really. Oh, my God. Yeah, that issue, too. 
But anyway, let's let's jump into 1980. And like I said, and like I just said earlier, a couple minutes ago, we did discuss Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz. So you know, we're we're going to be repeating ourselves, but that's what we do. The Sabbath situation solidifies. They fly down to um, where was Heaven and Hell made? Miami or Bahamas? Miami. They, yeah. The, the most appropriate place to record an album by Black Sabbath called Heaven and Hell is, is of course, sunny Miami. Well, of course. And I think the, the sound of that album kind of reflects that in a way. Yeah, the, uh, the sound of that album is definitely a little flaky, if you know what I mean. Don't get me wrong. It's a great album, and I love the songs. But it, it is a bit, like I said in our previous episode, it's a bit on the light side for a heavy metal album. But you can't deny the energy and the chemistry and the fact that everybody was playing really well. Even Bill Ward, who claims in interviews to have no memory whatsoever of recording the Heaven and Hell album. Yeah, that I think there was definitely a it was definitely a snowy occasion in Miami, strangely enough. Meanwhile, Ozzy and the gang are in England recording Blizzard of Oz. There's always been some controversy as to who wrote what. There's also been a great deal of controversy over whether Blizzard of Oz was Ozzy's solo album or the debut of a band called Blizzard of Oz. Regardless, um, two classic albums made by a lineup that that disintegrated very shortly, uh, much like Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules are two classic albums by a lineup that definitely didn't last. Almost oh, definitely. And of course, the feud begins in the pages of magazines like Hit Parader. I remember reading in the fall of 1980 an article called Black Sabbath's Family Feud, and it talked about heaven and hell. And what's interesting was that Ronnie James Dio in the beginning was very diplomatic. He was saying things like, you know, I'm not a replacement for Ozzy. He's irreplaceable. I'm just stepping up to the mic and being the new singer in Black Sabbath. It started off nice, but then Ozzy started firing stuff it back at D you know, saying, Oh, he sucks and he's you know, he's a dwarf and he's this and he's that and then it got ugly. That's true. If you remember Ozzy used to sing uh, Goodbye to Romance on stage and during that time they would hang a dwarf, which was rather rather blatant declaration of his feelings toward Dio and being replaced in general. So yeah, I I think the origins of the feud are much more likely down to Ozzy rather than Ronnie. Right, and that dwarf, by the way, his name, his real name was John Allen, but he was called on stage Ronnie. Really nice, Oz. Yeah, Ozzy was definitely at his most uh, humane and and diplomatic and many other complimentary terms we get to use. But the feud sold copies of magazines, and it certainly sold copies of records. Almost definitely, and it definitely paved the way for Ozzy to, to come out as a solo artist because although Blizzard of Oz was released in 1980 over in Europe and other countries, it wasn't released until the spring of 1981 in the U.S. Seth had quite an advantage in terms of the U.S. getting their album out first. The, the other ironic thing about that is if you, if you remember, a couple of minutes ago we were talking about Sabbath trying to get the deal to move to Jet Records. In the end, Sharon convinced Dad to give Ozzy Sabbath's Jet Records deal. If you remember, those albums came out in, in America originally on Jet Records. But yeah, it was one of those you know, production deal type things where Ozzy was signed to Don Arden's label. And then, and then Don Arden you know, signed a distribution deal with CBS, Columbia, Epic, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, so in the end... Everything that had been set up for Sabbath pretty much went to Ozzy through through Sharon. So that was probably another source of like legal and financial contention that would probably raged on behind the scenes. Oh, signing with Don Arden, believe me, both Sharon and Ozzy would both live to regret that. And the funny thing is, is the whole Don Arden thing comes back to Black Sabbath at some point. But anyway, like I said, we're in 1980, 81. And, of course, it's Blizzard of Oz versus Heaven and Hell. And that's a tough one to call in terms of which album I prefer. That's a real tough one. They both are chock full of classics. 
Blizzard of Oz is produced a little bit better. It has a more sort of raw, earthy, down-to-earth kind of sound. It's got a great deal of English humor to it. It's a bit more sort of punky, whereas, you know, Heaven and Hell is a lot more grandiose. Heaven and Hell is, is almost more a continuation of a Rainbow album than it is anything that Sabbath would have done. But there are little touches of, you know, the riff style of Sabbath. The atmosphere is a lot darker than the average Rainbow album. But then again, you know, the the atmosphere of Blizzard of Oz is a little bit lighter than the average Sabbath album. The, the main thing is that, you know, both albums, even though one is produced better than the other, neither of them have that horrific Iomi production. This is true. I remember... Um in one of the early interviews I read with Ozzy when he was promoting Blizzard of Oz, and he said, uh, F and Iomi, man, he couldn't produce a Christmas card. It is true that technical, ex- technical ecstasy and never say die both are produced um, in an interesting manner. They're reverbed all the hell. The guitars are, are recorded weirdly. The vocals are kind of harsh. It's definitely an unsettling feeling when you put those on in headphones. Right. And that's another, and that's another reason why neither of those albums are incredibly highly regarded. Well, it depends on who you talk to. But getting back to the 1980s, the decade that you claim never existed, although I have evidence to the contrary. You know, we have Ozzy versus Sabbath, and the feud is going strong, and they're fighting, and they're going, and they're both touring. Although, in Sabbath's case, the tour kind of breaks down a little bit when Bill Ward up and leaves in the up and leaves in the middle of a tour due to various personal issues. Um, you know, I think at the time they said his parents had both died, and obviously with he was having some issues with drugs and alcohol, and they had to cancel a few shows, and they brought in Vinny Apice as the new drummer. Uh, Vinny, of course, is the brother of. Uh, Carmine Apice. See, they both pronounce the name differently. But, yeah, they bring in uh, Vinny Apice. I guess not, they're not sure at the time if it's going to be temporary or permanent, but Vinny comes in. He's a different kind of drummer than Bill Ward, obviously, but he fits the bill and ends up becoming the permanent replacement for Bill Ward, permanent being a relative term in rock band parlance. Yeah, his style is a bit more straightforward it's a bit more basic rock and roll you know it's not bill ward kind of comes from that ginger baker kind of like jazz fills thing benny apathy is much more of like a straight ahead john bonham type of drummer so the sound of the group definitely changes the songs become a bit more streamlined and which you can definitely hear on on the Mob Rules record, which is a much more typically 80s, straight-ahead heavy metal record. Right. And it's also, to me, a much heavier album than Heaven and Hell, and, and not, only, not only in terms of the sound, but even the subject matter. And this is 1981, late 1981, so you've got Black Sabbath with a new drummer going head-to-head with Ozzy, who's come out with his second solo album, uh, Dyer of a Madman. And like I said, this was recorded in early 1981 with Bob Daisley on bass, Lee Kerslake on drums, and Randy Rhodes, the late Randy Rhodes, on guitar. But if you bought the album in 1981, it didn't show Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake. It showed Tommy Aldridge and um, Rudy Sarzo on bass. That was kind of weird. That's true. Go ahead. Well, that was part. Of, that was part of the attempt to erase Kerslake and Daisley from history. Uh, if you recall, about a dozen years later, um, they literally were erased off the master tapes for that record. Oh, that the new a, editions of of the reissues. That was actually early two thousands, but you know, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like they were, they've always tried. You know, yeah, for about a dozen years there um they were nowhere to be heard on the on the re-release of the album that's only changed um in the last couple of years and of course now lee kerslake has left us as well and again like i said you you have 
both of them doing really well. In some in some ways, I think I like Mob Rules better than Heaven and Hell. But if I had to put Mob Rules versus Diary of a Madman, I'd probably give it to Diary of a Madman because, in my opinion, that is Ozzy's solo masterpiece. That's interesting. It's hard to say what I would choose. Luckily, we don't have to. No, no, you don't have to. They're both great albums, and they were also the end of their respective eras, although we didn't know it at the time, because we, you know, and again, of course, the feuding is is, is just escalating, you know, Ozzy, I'm sorry, Ronnie James Dio said something like, anyone who compares me to vocally to Ozzy has to be deaf. So Ronnie James Dio wasn't pulling any punches, and Ronnie James Dio is not a guy to uh, forgive and forget. No, when you involve a Sicilian and a vendetta, it's a lifelong excursion. Yeah, you know, this Aussie fella, he's causing me a lot of grief. <laughs> I think he should wake up with a dead bat in his bed. I think he has on more than one occasion. And, you know, let's kill his wife, Sharon. No, no, duh. It'd be more cruel to let him live with her. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I got you there. Okay, yeah. That's definitely the truth. Thank you, Don Dio. <laughs> Don Dio. Is that like Don Cornelius? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing is, like, comparing them to the two of them vocally, I, find, I have a hard time picking a favorite because technically Dio is the better singer. I, I, I don't think anyone can dispute that. But Ozzy's voice has such character to it. Well, Dio is definitely the better singer, and he's a better songwriter, too. In fact, he's pretty much the better everything, except that Ozzy is such a personality. He's such a memorable, lovable, underdog personality that you can't help but find a place for him at his table, even though you're always slightly embarrassed by him. Well, that's the thing. I think Ozzy is always at the mercy of whoever he's collaborating with or whoever is he has been hired to work with him. And I, you know, I, I put that to producers, uh, musicians, Sharon, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, Ozzy, you know, the theory was that, well, the thinking was that, you know, Sabbath would probably do okay, but Ozzy was like a chicken running around with his head cut off. And Ozzy you know, over time, ended up having a much bigger solo career than Black Sabbath did post-Ozzy. That's true. A lot of it was... I mean, of course Ozzy has talent. He has personality. He can sing a song. A lot of it, of course, is, you know, packaging and putting him with the right collaborators. Ozzy is a bit closer to Elvis than Dio was. Well, yeah, and they both they and they and both tended to wear very... Um, Flashy jumpsuits. That's true. But, I mean, in the sense that, you know, the quality of an Elvis presentation depends on, you know, who's writing the songs, who's producing the record, who's putting who's helping him shape his general image for that year. You know, there's a lot of, like, it makes sense that Ozzy was the reality TV star and not Dio. And then, you know, you... Again, like not only is the feud public between, uh, uh, yeah, not only is the feud public between Ozzy and Dio, but 1982 sees Black Sabbath kind, of, Black Sabbath coming undone with Dio and Ozzy experiencing, of course, the tragedy of losing Randy Rhodes on tour, and this would impact both bands in a very interesting fashion as that year progressed. Yeah, we're we're moving toward the era of the live evil uh, fiasco. Well, yeah, what's interesting about that is that in the summer of 1982, Black Sabbath announces they're going to do a live album called Live Evil. And all of a sudden, a couple of months later, Ozzy decides to record a live album of all Black Sabbath. I was going to say covers, but that's not appropriate. He decides to record an album of all Black Sabbath songs. And by this time, he's got Brad Gillis filling in on guitar for Randy Rhodes, And Ozzy's Speak of the Devil live album comes out first. It comes out in the fall of 1982. I believe it was October or November. And what's funny about that, there was an article, and of course, in the great Hit Parader magazine that I'll never forget, where the writer claimed that Ozzy's Speak of the Devil is beating 
uh, Sabbath's Live Evil on the charts. Well, there was just one problem with that. Live Evil hadn't been released yet. That's true. And by the way, I remember reading Hip Raider articles where Speak of the Devil was still being called History of Oz. You know, you're right about that. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. History of Oz. Uh, exactly. So not only have you got Ozzy, you know, stoking the feud with uh, Dio and Sabbath. Meanwhile, while Black Sabbath is attempting to mix live evil, they're falling apart. Yeah, apparently uh, Dio was the kind of guy who liked to mix during the mornings. Or was it the other way around? The story I, I- Iommi and Butler would come into the studio at a certain time of the day or evening. They would mix. Apparently then Dio and maybe Vinny or whoever, probably Dio by himself would come in and listen to the mix and go, well, what's this all about? Why am I vocal so far down? Well, the story that I heard was that they told the guys to show up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So Dio and Vinny Apice, the drummer, would show up. And they'd be there for a few hours, and Iomi and Butler, I'm sorry, Tony and Geezer wouldn't show up till, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night. And apparently, the engineer was kind of filling their ears with stories. Yeah, you know, they tried to mix your stuff down, or Dio tried to mix his stuff up. At any rate, the relationship, you know, had deteriorated between Tony and Geezer and Ronnie and Vinny to the point where by the time Live Evil did get released in late 82, early 83, they were not only out of the band, but significantly on the back cover of Live Evil, Ronnie's name is listed as Ronnie Dio. Not Ronnie James Dio, Ronnie Dio. And Vinny Apice is credited as a sideman with Jeff Nichols. It's a special thanks to Vinny Apice for drums and Jeff Nichols for keyboards. So... Things were things were tough all over for both bands. Yeah, they they were definitely like looking to make another yet another change, moving on, which kind of brings us to the comparison ultimately of who has the better live album and who has the better claim to you know the Sabbath legacy. Well, I like both records, but I'm gonna say that Ozzy's beats Live Evil because it has. It has more immediacy to it. It doesn't sound quite as uh, tinkered with because I think they recorded it in September of 82 and had it out by like November or something. They had it out for the Christmas market. There's some interesting stuff on there. Like he does Symptom of the Universe and he's singing it in the lower key, which is, I think, in a lot of ways better suited to his voice because on the version from Sabotage, he's just screaming at the top of his like lungs past his range, in my opinion. Yeah, that whole Sabotage album had to be a huge strain on his vocal cords. And probably one of the reasons why, you know, he eventually ended up leaving the band. Because from that point forward, all the songs were back in standard tuning. If you listen to uh, the version of Snowblind, that comes from the, uh, the Never Say Die tour. Snowblind on the album is in like C-sharp. Snowblind on that tour was back in standard tuning, and so yeah, he spends the whole concert screaming at at the top of his range, and probably as you say, beyond it. But on the other hand, Live Evil, it's interesting when you hear Ronnie James Dio singing the Aussie tunes because they almost sound like dramatic, dramatic readings. Although I'm not saying that to put Dio down. Dio's obviously not going to copy Aussie. He can't. He has a different style, and he's going to do them his way. But if you listen to something like Black Sabbath, he's going, what is this? You know, almost, uh, I was going to say Shatner, William Shatner-esque, but that, that'd be kind of cruel, especially since Ronnie's no longer with us. He's approaching it, you know, he's, he's basically taking on a role. A bit of Edgar Allan Poe meets James Earl Jones. Although I do like, like I said, I do like the album. And it's also the first instance where you hear them taking a song heaven and hell extending it out and making it into a medley where it intercuts with other tracks that's true the uh, the intro of uh, sign of the southern cross is there just before they move back into the last section of heaven and hell and there's a long um, extended iomi solo guitar guitar solo in the middle unaccompanied that's that's probably like dio's requisite 
vocal break during that point. He's backstage having a cigarette for seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, for a guy with such a great voice, it's it's you know it's amazing that his voice held up as long as it did. Yeah, he held up straight to the end. Live Evil for me, it, it's as you say, not as immediate as as. Speak of the Devil. I mean, Speak of the Devil was done two nights at the Ritz in New York City, mixed and mastered, and pretty much sent out like two months later. Live Evil was apparently recorded in like three separate locations in Texas, of all places. San Antonio, Dallas, and some other place, Fort Worth. And it's mixed oddly, really oddly. The audience sounds like it's like 5,000 miles away from the actual stage. So you hear this loud roar that comes to an end. Then you hear the applause, and the applause is mixed so weirdly. Well, like we said, you know, the whole mixing of that album took place under a cloud with people accusing one another of treachery. And unfortunately, you know, like we said, it's the end of that era. Uh, before we move on completely from Live Evil, the last thing I wanted to say about the sound of that record is how reverbed it is. It literally sounds like the sound is, is ping-ponging from the stage onto the audience and back onto the stage. Everything is echoed. Um, even during the actual like main riffs of the songs, when uh, Miami starts on, on Paranoid, the, the riff is almost being repeated like it's on an echoplex. It could very well have been on an echoplex, given I don't know exactly what his guitar gear was at that time, but certainly possible. And I wanted to throw in one last thought about uh, Speak of the Devil. Speak of the Devil, we're talking about you know Don Arden. Uh, that was essentially a contractual obligation album to get him out of his contract with Jet Records. Don Arden wanted to release a live album with Randy Rhodes, but... Uh, Ozzy and Sharon's line at the time was that they felt it would be kind of ghoulish to come out with a, a live Randy Rhodes album, you know, only you know five or six months after his death. But I think the real reason was they just didn't want to give that to Don Arden, so they gave him "Speak of the Devil," and they were free and clear of their obligation to him. That makes sense. I mean, Sharon is definitely a very, very savvy businesswoman, also a very, very vindictive businesswoman. Even against her own father, yeah. And believe me, that would uh, manifest itself in some very kind of sad ways, but that's that's for another show. So we move on to the era where Dio himself is free of clear, free and clear of Sabbath. Sabbath is now out of the picture. The feud is pretty much dying down at this point. However, you know, for us old timers who remember the feud in the first place, we still kind of have that mindset of saying, well, you know, Dio's got an album out, Ozzy's got an album out, who's doing better at this point in their career? I do remember when Holy Diver came out in the summer of 1983, wondering what it was going to sound like. You know, what's one of James Dio going to sound like with new musicians? And of course, he had taken Vinnie Apice with him when he had been ousted from Black Sabbath and had formed a band with... Jimmy Bain, of course, Jimmy Bain played on the Rainbow Rising album. He was the bass player. And a new guitar player from Belfast, Ireland by the name of Vivian Campbell. And they came out with an album called Holy Diver, which is, to this day, an album that really holds up very well. It is uh, Dio's, it is absolutely Dio's defining masterpiece. That is the album that, more than any other one, solidifies Dio's sound his image, his personality, his uh, his u- unique presentation as an artist. When you think about Dio, you pretty much do think about, you know, the image of Holy Diver. That's right. And what a declaration of intent. I mean, Ronnie was not only uh, naming the band after himself, he produced it, and he there was a credit that said all lyrics and melodies by Ronnie James Dio, but I think that credit also was featured on the two Black Sabbath records he had done prior to that. The two Black Sabbath studio records, I should say. Yeah, I think that was his way of asserting himself. This is what I bring to the table. 
And of course, you've got the title track, which is, has one of the greatest rock and roll grooves, rock and roll heavy metal grooves ever. And of course, one of his signature songs, Rainbow in the Dark. Now, for a guy who got you know forced out of a band called Rainbow, he had no problem titling songs with that. I think that was, again, you know, another sort of like slight, um, what do you want to call it? A, a little bit of a slap back, so to speak. <laughs> slap back. At a certain uh, individual from his past. Uh, he doesn't want to continue the Rainbow Legacy the way it should be. Well, I'll go ahead and continue it my way. That's right. And the interesting thing about Rainbow in the Dark is, and Ronnie James Dio has confirmed this in an interview, once they finished recording it, Ronnie James Dio wanted to take a razor blade to the tape and destroy it. He thought the song was too poppy, didn't think it was really that good. And the guys in the band said, no, 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 you can't do that. This song is great. And he relented. And, of course, like I said, it's become one of his signature songs. Obviously, it was the first single released from Holy Diver. You know, you still hear it on classic rock radio to this day. You uh, you heard it in a Budweiser commercial that summer as well, if you recall. Yeah. <laughs> the king of beers is coming through. Hey, you know, with a voice like that, you could sing in a Ryan James Dio tribute band. Budweiser James Dio. But buddy, buddy James Dio, yeah. They, you know, they could play honky tonks. <laughs> buddy James Dio, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I was watching a video of from that first tour, and they're they're basically, you know, you could tell they didn't have a lot of money when they were starting out this band. So they're performing on a stage that that looks kind of like an ice cave, or Vinnie Appice is atop the Fortress of Solitude playing his drums. Yeah, it kind of looked like, you know, in a lot of ways, it reminds you of Kiss when they started on their first tour. You could kind of almost see the hydraulic lift, you know, behind this, behind Vinnie Havasi's riser. It looked like they were going to launch him straight up to the ceiling. It was def- definitely starting out, you know, with bare bones, but quickly improved. Oh, yeah, definitely. And... Then in late 1983, of course, we have Ozzy coming out with his Bark at the Moon album. And this is, of course, his first studio album uh, without Randy Rhodes. And he's got an entirely, almost entirely new lineup with uh, Jakey Lee on lead guitar or guitar. Tommy Aldridge on drums. Of course, Tommy Aldridge is a carryover from the Speak of the Devil album. And he'd been touring with them since 1981. And of course... Uh, Don Aries on keyboards, and Bob Daisley is back on bass. That's right. The sound of the band is is drastically different, and it was something that was noticeable even then. Oh yeah, I mean I like Bark at the Moon, but it it does definitely does not measure up to Diary of a Madman or Blizzard of Oz, you know. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Well, there's, you know, I just think, you know, obviously it was a it was a new band and a new collaboration, but there's some very good songs on it, like the title track, uh, "Rock and Roll Rebel," "Center of Eternity," and of course the ballad that everyone claimed was inspired by ELO, "So Tired." Yeah, you can definitely tell the songs that were co-written with Bob versus the ones that weren't, because all of a sudden there is kind of a almost like a sunset strip kind of quality that enters into the other songs. Have you ever read the credits for the Bark at the Moon album? A long time ago. It's been about 30 years since I had a copy. Well, the songs are solely credited to one person, Ozzy Osbourne. Ah, that's interesting. (laughs) And even then, I I said to myself, there's no way Ozzy wrote this by himself. I mean, he's not a musician, per se, there's always claims that, you know, somebody else was writing the lyrics, whether it be Geezer Butler and Sabbath or Bob Daisley in this point. Apparently, Bob Daisley was given an upfront payment, you know, for this. And Jakey Lee, being kind of new at the game, wasn't. And and by the way, just so I backtrack a little bit, Jakey Lee had also auditioned for uh, Dio, but hadn't, didn't, obviously didn't make the cut. Yeah, it was definitely a small world. 
If if you had if you had ever played in Rainbow, you had a shot in Sabbath or Ozzy's band, or White Snake, or Deep mm-hmm. Purple, or you know, it's just this this circular thing of you know five or six bands. I mean, just just talking about that alone would take up you know an entire show. It's definitely a friends network. And the funny thing is, later uh, Bob Daisy would end up playing with. Uh, one of the numerous Black Sabbath lineups headed by Tony Iommi in the late 80s. But getting back to Bark at the Moon, yeah, I would I would pick Holy Diver hands down. Yeah, there really is no competition. I mean, it's it's Ozzy having already stated his case, make made his grand masterpiece. He's established himself. Now he gets to enjoy the fruits of superstardom. Meanwhile, Dio, of course, is is still hungry. He's reached the heights with, you know, in a band context, but now it's time to establish himself as a solo performer. Holy Diver is that grand declaration of intent, and it it is his crowning masterpiece. So yeah, Holy Diver, it definitely is. Oh yeah, and you know, Ronnie James Dio and his band—they were just turning them out. I mean. Three years in a row, they did, you know, 83 was Holy Diver, 1984 was Last in Line, and 1985 was the Sacred Heart album. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely no lack of energy or ambition on Ronnie's part. Yeah, the, those first three albums, I guess, to some degree, some people would see Sacred Heart as the lesser of the three. I personally have a, a great love for that album. Um you rock and roll children is on that album. A whole lot of great songs. Hungry for Heaven, which a lot of people, I guess, see as kind of a rehash of, of Rainbow in the Dark. Well, Hungry for Heaven was recorded for a movie soundtrack originally, Vision Quest. Mm. I personally feel that Sacred Heart is definitely the lesser of those three original Dio albums from the original Dio band. Some great songs, King of Rock and Roll, the title track, you know, Hungry for Heaven is pretty good, Rock and Roll Children. But I also feel that they were kind of creatively, things were starting to backfire, and there were reasons for that. Uh, Vivian Campbell would would soon be shown the door. Ronnie was getting divorced at the time. And, you know, I, I would also have to think that the album tour, album tour grind, especially when you do three in a row like that, would wear on you, even, the, you know, and Ronnie at that point, you know, he was in his 40s by that, by that time. That's the other thing that, that we forgot to mention earlier. Nobody knew how old Ronnie was at the time. Everybody assumed that he was about Ozzy's age in his early 30s. I don't think anybody guessed at that point that he was actually in his early 40s. No, definitely not. I mean, it, I don't think it even came out really until he passed that he was, you know, if you like I said, he was six years older than Ozzy. So he was already, like I said, he was 42. So, yeah, he was 40, you know, in his early 40s by that point, where Ozzy was in his early 30s. Yeah, his, his age was always kept a secret, I guess, because he assumed that people would, like, you know, think that he was too old to be doing what he was doing. Well, especially when you consider his roots and how he got started. But like I've said before, that's another podcast and that's another episode. But yeah, and, you know, we kind of jumped over Last in Line, which is another great album by Ronnie James Dio. In fact, for the longest time, that was my favorite Dio album. But that's shifted, obviously, to Holy Diver. But Last in Line had some great songs. The title track, We Rock, which, of course, is a you know great live song. It's a great song anyway. And, of course, a song that... Vinnie Apice has since decried, but I love it. It was the second single from Last in Line called Mystery. I can't imagine why Vinnie would hate that song. That's one of the best songs Dio ever wrote. Well, I think he hated it for the same reason that Dio didn't like Rainbow in the Dark. He thought it was too pop. It was too commercial. Yeah, I can see that. But those commercial songs are what people, you know, those are the impressions that people have of Dio. You know, and you know, as as casual fans, they remember Rainbow in the Dark and Hungry for Heaven. Oh yeah, I mean, like my for me, my golden era for Dio as a solo, well, not solo artist of the Dio band would probably be Holy Diver through Dream Evil, which came out in 1987. 
Yeah, that was kind of his golden era. The the albums that he made with Vivian Campbell and and Greg Goldie. Although I prefer Vivian and the original band, I would say that I prefer Dream Evil as an album because it felt like they got some energy back with Craig Goldie. Things weren't, you know, happening between um, Ronnie and Vivian because of some, you know, deals they made or... I think what ultimately led to the downfall of the uh, the first classic Dio lineup was the fact that Wendy Dio, Ronnie's manager at the time and also his wife at the time, had apparently convinced the other members of the group to uh, to stay in the act as a, on a salary basis rather than getting a percentage of their performances on the album. So they weren't royalty full members of the group. They were salaried band members, and that evidently, you know, ultimately led to them leaving one by one. Well, I know that Vinny and Jimmy Bain left, but Vivian was fired. Yeah, that that's true. That led to a feud, a sub-feud, if you will, where <laughs> Ozzy, and, uh, Ozzy and Vivian hated each other. I mean, uh, Dio and Vivian hated each other. And I think that's a feud that lasted at the end of Dio's life. Yeah, that never got resolved. And there's a video of uh, there's a video of Ronnie James Dio that was shot on someone's cell phone, and man, he just savages uh, Vivian Campbell. But anyway, getting back to the whole you know Ozzy versus Dio thing, I think we should end this with the year 1986, in which Ozzy releases his Ultimate Sin album, and this is the first album. He's released since 1983. Dio, on the other hand, has released two full albums in the time that Ozzy's released no albums. But mm. Ozzy also had, you know, gone to rehab for the first time after touring with Motley Crue, and it was decided once again that Ozzy needed a new sound and a new direction. So basically, all of the band members from Bark at the Moon were gone, and in their place you had Randy Castillo on drums. Phil Susan on bass and Jakey e. Lee on guitar. So actually, he, he didn't get rid of everybody. He just got rid of the rhythm section and the keyboard player. Ultimate Sin is a drastically underrated album, even by Ozzy himself. Ozzy was in his worst physical shape, that's for sure. But the album itself is is not a bad album. Bob Daisley is actually back once again as uncredited songwriter. And, of course, it's produced by Ron Nevison, who, in his typical fashion, has the, what I call the Ron Nevison crunchy guitar sound. Mm -hmm. I love Ultimate Sin. I think it's a great album. I I know a a lot of people don't like it, including Ozzy himself, because the album hasn't been in print since uh, the early 2000s, I believe. It's one of those, you know, records that kind of got purged along with Speak of the Devil and the original versions of... uh, Dire of a Madman and Blizzard of Oz, although Blizzard of Oz and Madman have been reinstated with the original tracks. But I love Ultimate Sin. It's it's a it's big, it's bold, and for me, it's the end of Ozzy's golden era as a solo artist. That's very true. It's a way better album than Bark of the Moon, and of course, it it, it sold very well in its day. But obviously, No Rest for the Wicked was the beginning of commercial Ozzy, you might say. Well, the interesting thing about uh, Ultimate Sin is that it was Ozzy's first top ten album in the United States as a solo artist. And I saw him on that tour. The one and only time I saw Ozzy as a solo artist at the Worcester Centrum. No, I'd never seen him as a solo artist. Oh, no, well, that's not true. That's not true. Ozfest 98, which also featured him opening for himself so to speak, because that was Black Sabbath on the bill also. Right. And when I saw him at the Worcester Centrum in the spring of 1986, he had this new young upstart band called Metallica, who I'd never heard of up to that point. Yeah, that was the beginning of a whole new era. Confirming, by the way, that the 80s didn't exist. (laughs) Oh, you're going to say that again, aren't you? Mm Mm-hmm. But everything we've been talking about is proof positive that the 80s did exist and was a pretty good time for Ozzy and Dio. Well, we've we've established that people named Ozzy and Dio existed. I'll, I'll grant you that far. 
<laughs> and just as a side note, in 1986, Dio did not release a studio album, but he released a live EP, if you want to call it, called Intermission, which did have one new studio track called Time to Burn, which featured Craig Goldie on guitar. Yeah, I believe that was... In fact, that was Craig Goldie's official introduction to the band, uh, because it was around that time that the uh, the exit of Vivian Campbell was made public. Right, and the interesting thing about that live album, although it, it, this is, again, a case where there was some misrepresentation, from what I understand, is that although Craig Goldie is seen on the picture on the back album cover apparently the live material was recorded with vivian campbell prior to his departure because vivian campbell did play on the first part of the sacred heart tour oh yeah it was i'm sure most of the album itself was actually vivian campbell but again when you fall out you know you you your name tends to disappear from the credits that's the way it always is and I think this is as good a place as any, because, again, the Aussie versus Dio wasn't a feud as such at this point, but they were both coming out with records, and they both were having a significant impact in terms of uh, the charts in their fan base, their respective fan bases. Although, if you were like me, I liked both of them. I didn't see why you, had to <coughs> you didn't have to choose one over the other. No, you really don't. And they're at the peak of their careers around 1985, 1986. This is just before or just as, you know, the whole Sunset Strip hair metal, glam metal thing is beginning to overtake heavy metal as a genre. And, of course, it's a good four or five years before the entirety of heavy metal as a genre gets erased from the scene by grunge. So 86, 87, they're absolutely at their peak. Absolutely. And although the feud or the the kind of competition sort of ends here in a sense, there would be a a brief reprise of the Dio and Ozzy feud in the 90s. And funnily enough, it would be happening just as the grunge uh, sound was beginning to take hold. In 1992, Black Sabbath reunited with Dio and the Apathy. It was actually a reunion of the... Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, Ronnie James Dio, and Vinnie Apice lineup, and they released an album called Dehumanizer. This was the uh, the lineup that some fans refer to as Geezer and the Italians. <laughs> That's true. I forgot Iommi is Italian, but anyway, they released the album, and it you know it does moderately well considering the musical landscape at the time. Um, however, at this point, Ozzy, who has released his No More Tears shampoo album. He has decided to go on what he's calling his quote-unquote farewell tour. Well, he didn't call it a farewell tour. He called it No More Tours. And the last show was going to take place in late 1992 in California. And what they had proposed was that Black Sabbath would open the show, and then Ozzy would come out and do his thing, and then for the final encore – Bill Ward, Geezer Butler, and Tony Iommi would come out and play as Black Sabbath um, for the first time since their one-off appearance at Live Aid in 1985. Yeah, the Costa Mesa show, uh, which was, I don't know, it's an interesting idea, but I can definitely see Dio feeling that, you know, he's being upstaged, he's being, you know, replaced again. Yeah, and Dio said, here was a guy who, you know, put the band down and put me down, and why I'm not going to open for him. And, you know, basically they were trying to set up a reunion tour for Black Sabbath, which didn't happen then. So Dio leaves once again, and of course, Vinnie Apice goes with him. You know, the Sabbath, and Rob Halford ends up filling in on lead vocals for Ronnie James Dio at that show. So that was kind of an interesting, again, an interesting one-off thing. Yeah, that's... Proof positive of, you know, the absolute lineup chaos that everybody was going through at that time. But Black Sabbath, more than most. Oh, yeah. And and like you said, you know, Ronnie James Dio was a Sicilian. He carried his grudges to the grave. So I don't I'm sure he never really became buddies with Ozzy. Although there's a picture from the mid 1980s that we're going to use as our artwork for this episode in which you see them. Ozzy and Dio hanging out. And like I said, it has to be from the, like, I don't know, maybe 1984, 1985. I mean, they don't look like they're having the greatest time of their lives, but it's just interesting to see the two of them together in a picture. 
it could be something like you know an early 80s like donnington or us festival or whatever it's probably around from that period yeah I would and, think and they so. look they look like they're getting along you know relatively simply well by that point you know the feud had, had subsided because neither one of them was in black sabbath so they you know they probably were they, they were probably comparing notes on tony iomi for all we know <laughs> yeah <laughs> But to sort of like follow this up, like I said, Ronnie James Dio probably took his his grudge with Ozzy to the grave. But I do remember reading an interview with Ozzy Osbourne, and I'm going to say it was in either the late 90s or the early 2000s, where Ozzy actually admitted that Ronnie James Dio was a good singer and that he'd made some good music with Black Sabbath. So good on Ozzy. Yeah, I guess the very, very, very last thing that we should mention is, of course, you know, 2009... Black Sabbath has officially reunited with Ozzy a number of times at, by this point. The, uh, the 1999 reunion, many Ozfest appearances, etc. For some reason, though, Ozzy doesn't feel like committing to making an album with Black Sabbath. Interestingly enough, Dio re-enters the picture, but for contractual reasons, legal reasons, sharing reasons... They can't call it Black Sabbath this time around. So what do they call it? Dun, 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 dun. The Flintstones. <laughs> yeah, they, they called it uh, Fre- Freddy and the Prophets. Mm-hmm. No, they called it Heaven and Hell. I've heard the story that they legally could have called it Black Sabbath, but with... Like you said, with them having have done the reunions on the Ozfest, they just decided to call it Heaven and Hell so that people would know it was Dio and not Ozzy. Whatever the case is, they did tour, and they ended up touring, doing several tours. It was supposed to be a one-shot thing in promotion of a uh, compilation record by Black Sabbath called The Dio Years, and uh, they ended up doing a few tours, and I remember thinking, oh, I'll go see them on the next tour. And sadly, of course, Ronnie James Dio passed in 2010. So I never got to see Ronnie James Dio live with any band, really, which I, I do regret. But I'll say this, you know, Heaven and Hell played shows at Madison Square Garden, you know, huge arenas. It was a return to, you know, the top. So Dio definitely left us at a career peak, which I think is, is very well-fitting. Oh, definitely. They recorded an album, Heaven and Hell did a studio album called The Devil You Know, and I much prefer it to the reunion album that Ozzy did with Sabbath. Not that, it's, you know, 13 is a bad record. I just think the chemistry between uh, Dio and Iomi and Geezer and Vinnie Apice was just right on, and there's some very heavy, heavy songs on that, like Bible Black and um adam and evil and when i say adam i mean atom not adam mm-hmm. Adam is in my friend adam it's a strangely slow paced record there's there's really only one super up-tempo song on that album eating the cannibals uh, it moves along at a very slow and lumbering pace and you know it, it's almost like brontosaurus like and it's in its pacing <laughs> yeah but like I said, I would still take it over the uh, the reunion album with Ozzy and Sabbath. And, uh, you know, on that note, I think we should end this unless you have something further you'd like to add. Well, you know, if you listen to Fools. Ah, uh, the mob rules. Yeah. Ronnie, we really miss you. Let me tell you. You were the man on the Silver Mountain. You always shall be. Hey, buddy's going to catch the rainbow. What can I say? We miss you, brother. Yep. And, you know, as far as you have to, picking one over the other, you don't have to. You are not required to pick one over the other. You can like Dio and you can like Ozzy. Both have their merits. Both have made their great albums. And their legacies live on. And Ozzy's still with us, you know. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason. You don't have to make a hard choice here. Enjoy them both. I've I've always been an Ozio fan myself. 
Well, like I said, you know, and I might have said this on our albums in 1980 episode, I came into Black Sabbath when Heaven and Hell was out and, you know, Blizzard of Oz was just coming out. So I, I like both. I just I have always thought of Black Sabbath, those versions of Black Sabbath, as two different, very different bands with the same name. And they they're both great. And I enjoy I enjoy them both. And I, like I said, Ozzy and Dio have definitely left a lasting impression on me as a music fan. And, you know, they were definitely part of the soundtrack of my teenage years in the 80s and uh, made me want to stand up and shout. He definitely did. That's why I call myself an Ozzy or a Dozzy fan. Dozzy. I love, I love them both. That's right. Anyhow, that pretty much wraps up this this week's fine episode of what are we going to call this one? Well, you had an interesting title. You had the sacred. I think it was sacred sinner of the ultimate of the ultimate heart. I like that. Let's go with that one. Okay. Of course, it's going to be hard fitting that on the you know little piece of artwork, but I'll find a way. Downsize the letters. Yeah. Get out your microscopes, kids. Or get out your microscopes, people like of, of our age. For the Double K Super Show, I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konzorowski. And we'll see you the next time over the mountain. On the Double K Super Show. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show. <laughs>